Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Hey, this is Dan Parks. Thanks again for listening to this project, the audiobook version of my novel Mercy Not Sacrifice. If I could ask you one favor, it would be to please rate or review this podcast on iTunes. Stay tuned for the last and final chapter. Chapter 21 homily. It's been said that on a day early in July, over a hundred years ago, a bishop from the diocese stood on the hill where the altar of St. Michael's Church now stands. He looked down upon the Missouri River and said, The day is not far that when a passenger train or a tugboat or a truck comes around or over that river below, some contented man will say, That's Gardenstown. I see the cross on St. Michael's Church. The highest point in Gardenstown is the steeple of St. Michael's. It's where the sun shines, its rays against the cross, carrying down over the bell tower and through the beautiful stained glass windows. The first was a single glass display, bearing the picture of the Virgin Mary, being visited by the angel Gabriel when he declared that she would be with child. The Lord is with you, he said. Mary had been invited to partake in a once-in-a-lifetime journey to give birth to the Son of God, and she responded, I am the Lord's servant. Had I answered to the life that I was called to live? At the altar's left, there was a three-piece portrait of the Virgin Mary and Joseph and Jesus as a child. How had he been raised? Had his parents been good to him? His eyes said so. But when I looked to my dad in the front row and turned around to see my mom in the back, mine did not. They were separated and disconnected and had split me right down the middle. Halfway down the aisle and through the middle of the pews was a double-pane picture of Jesus as a young man in the temple with the teachers. He stayed behind to discourse with them after a trip to Jerusalem with his parents. When Mary and Joseph had been almost home, they realized that they were without their son, and they returned to the holy city. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Who had my teachers been? Father John? No. My mom or my dad? No. Had it been Dr. Healer? What happened, Dr. Healer asked. What do you mean, what happened, I said. Dr. Healer took the yellow notepad off his lap and set it on the table. What did you do to get here? What did I do? I said as I stood up from the couch. His eyes saw through me. My parents and Lori and my cutting were all in an attempt to evade the responsibility that Mercy had in my life. Dr. Healer saw them for what they were, and he wanted me to do the same. What did I? I asked, staring him down. I walked towards the door, and after turning the knob, I stepped back to look at him one last time. But he didn't turn away. There wasn't a hint of cowardice in his stare. You know what? Fuck you, I said as I flipped over the lamp by the couch and walked out. Halfway down the hall, I heard him say, That's why you're still here. I passed by his secretary and attempting to stop me, she said, Are you alright, Mr. Carmen? In the cab of my pickup, I picked up a razor blade from the ashtray. Why had I started cutting? The reason had come to me when I was a little older than Jeffrey. I had been hurt by others, and the only way to gain back control was to hurt myself before anyone else could. Flipping the razor blade between my thumb 
or the index finger over the calluses on the tips of each finger. The familiarity told me that if I had sacrificed myself right then and there, that I might obtain mercy. Dr. Healer didn't follow me out, and instead the passenger side of my truck opened, and behind the shut door, Lori slid down the seat next to me. Really, Lori? I said. Now? You knew I'd come, she said. She touched her legs to mine and took the razor blade out of my hand and held it in hers. Don't, I said. Lori took it and placed it against the skin of her wrist. I'd like to see what it's like, she said. No, I responded. She looked at me with a dispute in her eyes. Why is it your sacrifice to make? She asked. Simon the priest stood before Grandpa John's casket and steadied himself to give his homily. He looked over the church and the family and me and wiped a tear from his cheek. I was lucky enough to get to know John Carmen before he passed, Simon the priest said, and we became great friends. He said that he wanted to learn from me, but he was the one that taught me how to give, for that was John's best quality. In the row of pallbearers, I sat on the end with my cousin Lenny on the left. I didn't know Grandpa John went to church, he said, nudging me with his elbow. I didn't either. Simon the priest took the few steps around the casket and stood at the front of it. I look over the pews today, and I see the faces of John Carmen's family and friends. Simon the priest said, interlocking his fingers over his stomach. He would want me to tell you that the world we live in is broken, he said. It can lead men and women down the wrong path. And once on it, it's hard to get off. It was Jesus that said, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Men of fortune are of a unique nature, and John Carmen was one of those men. He had amounted much wealth in his life, but when he received his cancer diagnosis, his money couldn't save him. The church was still, as all the eyes were on Simon the priest. John became alive when he stopped focusing on himself, he said, and instead he began to focus his sights on God. It is written, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He was given a month to live when his doctors found the cancer, and he lived for nearly nine more. What he did with that time in this town will live on. Look to the back of the church. Archie and Regina turned around. Sam and Carmela looked, and my dad glanced over his shoulder. The entirety of St. Michael's School is here to honor John Carmen's memory. Simon the priest lifted his hand in remembrance and said, St. Michael's School, the Carmen family thanks you for coming today. It was then that the school principal, Mr. Mathers, walked up the center aisle of the church and stood next to the casket. On behalf of St. Michael's School, I would like to say thanks to John Carmen, he said as he cleared his throat. With his generous donation, we will be able to build our very own gymnasium and can provide a livable wage for all teachers and staff for decades to come. In its 100-year history, St. Michael's School has never had such an opportunity. We thank you very much. Mr. Mathers looked at the casket with the United States flag draped over it and stood at attention, giving it a salute. A second of reverence was given by the congregation, in which afterwards each individual stood. Big Joe... Glenn O'Malley and Earl, Jamie and Kay Weiss, and Tripp and Jimmy were amongst the faces on the left. Jerry Fox, Denver Norton, and Royston Scriven, and Brett Sanford, Wendy Heidelberg, and Betty, and Gino Tivioli on the right. As the standing ovation began, I stood to join. My hands clapped together, and a smile almost came to my face. 
But then I saw her. This was a different woman than the one from San Francisco. She came from the opposite side of the church, passing the prayer candles, and turned to the statue of Mary walking towards the casket. Her eyes locked on mine, at Joseph's statue opposite the altar. In Lori's eyes, for the first time, I saw a reflection, and I ran from it. I stood up from the pew and tried to gain my footing as I took to the aisle by the door, but I fell by the exit. The Stations of the Cross were displayed around the walls of St. Michael's Catholic Church. They are a series of 14 pictures representing successive incidents during the process of Jesus' death, from his condemnation to his crucifixion. I fell a second time by the fifth station where Simon of Cyrene was pictured. When Jesus couldn't physically go any farther to make his sacrifice, Simon stepped in. Simon helped carry his cross to the hill of Golgotha on which he was crucified upon. He bore the load when the Savior no longer could. On my knees, Lori approached me from behind, but in front of me, a hand extended out towards me. You okay, Johnny? Mike asked, pulling me up from the ground. A bloody tear fell down my cheek as I got to my feet. I miss him too, Johnny, Mike said. My sacrifice had become a selfish notion. It wasn't about Grandpa John, and it wasn't about my family. Without an answer, I walked around him and continued down the aisle, past Wesley and Becky George, Willie and Cheryl Smith, and Mr. and Mrs. Moon, and a third time I fell. At the corner of the last pew, I held onto the grains of its wood. Slow and persistently, she came towards me. Lori, I said, looking down behind me. I'm done. In the lobby past the statue of the lifeless Jesus, she stood next to me in between the pedestals of holy water. The clapping had succeeded, and Mr. Mathers had returned to his seat, and those in attendance had sat back down, leaving only Simon the priest remaining standing. The readings of scripture today reference one particular point Jesus was making, he said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that can mean something different to all of us. One thing to the man over in the corner, and another to the woman in the middle pew. To the man in the back of the church, those words might be the burden that he's carried his entire life. Lori came to stand directly in front of me. Her nose to mine, her brow on mine. In her eyes, I saw the reflection again, and the impossible happened. She stepped inside of me. I contained her being. Had I been the cause of my own sacrifice? Done with what? She asked inside of my head. Two pews from the back of Grandpa John's casket next to the aisle sat Jeffrey. His head had been shaved so that a drill could relieve the pressure on his brain caused by the impact of the water from his fall. In the water of the pedestal I caught my own reflection. The church called that water holy, but the look on my face was far from divine. Simon the priest said mercy and not sacrifice. But in my story, all I saw was a sacrifice. Where then was the mercy? Lori stepped outside my body and placed her hand in my front pocket. She moved around her fingers until she found it, and when she did, she placed her lips against my ear and said, It's still there. Simon the priest paced back and forth in front of the altar and stopped to speak. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he said. I know in my own life, for far too long, I thought that the church was a club for the good. I had sin in me, and I felt that I didn't belong. But this passage says otherwise. If we are sick, we belong here. 
and it's when we are made well that we can begin to help others. I stared down the aisle at the words that he said. I inspected them. I chewed on them. I tried them on to see if they could fit. But I couldn't allow myself to receive the mercy that I deserved. Lori took my chin in her hands and turned my face to hers. Let's go, she said, taking my hand. We walked past the entry doors of the church and down the stairs that led to the basement, to where tables and chairs had been set up for the catered meal after the funeral. The waitress from the griddle carried it in from the side door. She placed an aluminum pan of potatoes down on the buffet table up against the wall. When she walked back out to the delivery van, I made my way through the bathroom door and shut it quietly behind me. Coming back through the door with a pan of dinner roll, she said, Is someone down here? Inside the bathroom, Lori sat up on the toilet tank with her feet on the lid, and I grasped onto the marble sink with both hands. I saw her reflection in the mirror past mine. I knew it end here, she said. It had to sometime, didn't it, Johnny? When a man loses his mind, the past and the present become one. The life that I had lived became mixed. My sense of time was lost. I saw myself as a boy, walking alongside the Missouri River. As a passive observer, I watched from the bank. The boy smiled, swinging his arm around the sycamore tree by the water. He walked to the river's edge and put his feet in the water, but then the current picked up and swept him into the water. He reached for anything near. A branch. A rock. Debris. The harder he tried in the sacrifice, the worse his situation became. He was at the mercy of things outside of his control. Walking to the boy, I stretched out my arm and said, If you want out, you have to quit fighting it. Underneath the water, his eyes met mine. I splashed running water from the faucet onto my face, and the eyes that I met in the mirror were my own. Lori stood up from the toilet and placed her hands on my back, resting her chin on my shoulder. She put her hand in my pocket and took hold of the razor blade. If you know it's over, she said, why not one last time? From inside of me, the image in the mirror became hers, and my reflection was gone. Was she my creation? I took the razor blade out of my pocket and held it against my wrist. If I hurt her, would I be hurting myself? I raised the blade up against my neck instead. My face came back into the mirror and my hand dropped from my throat. Lori came back into view and the blade was against me once more. You've got to decide, Johnny, she said. You can't hide from. But her sentence was cut short when my face appeared in the mirror again. Lori, you've been me this whole time? My face disappeared and hers returned and she began her defense. I've been the part of you that you didn't want to know. The side of you that you wanted to ignore. I've been the you that you've been running from. When Grandpa John had caught me smoking, he said, Whenever you begin to hide who you are, you eventually start to hide from yourself. You can't outrun you. Eventually that person will catch up. What do I need to do? I asked my face in the mirror. Lori's answered, Choose. Jenny had just set down the last pan of food on the banquet table when she heard me in the bathroom. Why haven't you chosen? Lori asked. Someone there? Jenny asked, walking towards the closed bathroom door. She opened the bathroom door, and I held the razor blade in my hand. Johnny? Lori's face stared back at me in the bathroom mirror. It's your choice, she said. Mercy or sacrifice? I dropped the razor blade to the floor, and I didn't pick it back up. Who are you talking to? Jenny asked. I went into that bathroom a boy. In mind, in action, in behavior. I had no idea what it meant to be a man. I hid from the world. 
I hid from my past. I chose not to act on the future. The easiest path that a man can take is said to be a sin. But is it so when the decisions that have been made cut oneself with sacrifice? What does it mean to come of age? Is it a choice? A decision? Or a moment in time? A slow moving process? A maturation? Of the being? Or the soul? Myself, I responded. Brushing past Jenny through the doorway of the bathroom, I turned around to face her. And I took her chin in my hands, and I placed my thumbs on the point of her face where her jaw hinged. I didn't think of the past. I didn't think of Lori. I didn't think about myself. I thought of my present. And I looked Jenny in the eyes, and I kissed her lips. I've needed to do that for some time, I said. Jenny opened her eyes and said, You can do that whenever you want. Grandpa John had said, Each choice is like a step. We are either going up or down the stairs of life. Sometimes you find yourself going down, but you want to try to go up, Johnny. I walked up the stairs from the church basement, a changed man. I wasn't unblemished or spotless or pure, but I was becoming something new. I wasn't healed, but I was healing. I wasn't free of sacrifice, but I could feel the beginning of mercy. Mercy is a transient word, and it is up to us to choose to follow it. Sacrifice is a stale existence of death. Mercy is a new life, but sacrifice is a continuation of the old man. The beginning of mercy is surrender to becoming who you were meant to be, and the ending of sacrifice is letting go of who you once were. In the lobby of St. Michael's Church, I stood as a man for the first time. I said the word that would lead me for the rest of my life, the word that pulled me forward from my past and placed me in the present, the word that ended my sacrifice. Mercy. Behind the glass window sat my mom in the back pew. The scales fell from my eyes, and I saw her for who she was. A hurt woman who had tried her best to be a mother. Mercy had gifted me with love for her that day. At the casket, Simon the priest began to lead the congregation in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, he said, hallowed be thy name. The people stood, reciting the words with them. Wendy Heidelberg and her children, Glenna and Dan, and O'Malley across the aisle from them. Tripp and Jimmy balancing on his good legs, saying only the words he remembered and looking half sober. Wesley and Becky George, Mrs. Jones, and Neva Nelson across the way. The whole of Gardenstown was there for Grandpa John that day. Until that moment, my life had been about no one but myself. I only saw the world through my eyes. Walking back up the aisle, I saw the other stories of my life. I saw people for who they were, and I saw Gardenstown for what it could be. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I looked over at my dad with the Carmen family, and I honored him for who he was, a becoming man who was in need of mercy too, one who despite the outcome never gave up on trying, coming to the pew of the pallbearers and passing the men that had carried Grandpa John in the church that day. I stood next to Lenny. You're here, he said. Finally, I responded. Across the aisle, Jeffrey watched me return, and in a sign of strength, I held a closed fist to my chest. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, we said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And give us mercy, not sacrifice, I added. I sit on the tailgate of my Ford truck, 
And my eldest son sits next to me. My wife Jenny prepares food. My youngest runs to me from out of the river. There's a book in the Bible. I think it's the first one of the New Testament. Which says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. I'm not saying that I was innocent, only that I no longer condemn myself. I chose mercy, not sacrifice. A Carmen Carrier truck drives up and over the Gardenstown Bridge, and it blows its horn and the driver points down at us. There goes Jeffrey. We both look up and wave and I put my arm around his shoulder and I say, Look John, there's Gardenstown. Do you see the cross on St. Michael's Church?